Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My guest today is Gary Bullis. He's the chair at Singularity University talking about the future of work, how we work, where we work, with whom we work, etc. And obviously, this is going to be very relevant with the uh, coronavirus nightmare and changing how everyone has to work. Um, Ongoing, who knows? So that's what we're going to ask Gary about. Um, again, he's at Singularity University. All the guests I've had from Singularity are really uh, top people that have a lot of projects going on, and uh, they always provide great info. So, Gary, thanks for coming. Absolutely. No, I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, tell me about um, what does that mean that you're the, the chair of the future of work? What, what do you typically do at Singularity? What do you think about? So just to make sure that I'm sure your um, listeners know, but Singularity University is uh, based in Silicon Valley. It's um, really a learning platform. Um, There's hundreds of thousands of people have been through a variety of different programs that um, the organization and its partners produce. Uh, It's founded by Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis, uh, both futurists and and very inspiring um, speakers and and authors talking about uh, positive future. Um, and uh, I, I've actually um, had a working relationship with Singularity uh, for um, going on seven years now. Um, adjunct uh, chair for the future of work, but we've done a, a range of projects together. So um, what that means is that Singularity has hundreds of brainiacs um, on everything from uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to next generation medicine and everything in between. Um, and uh, they're all around the world and they're they're all practitioners in their field. They're like the person who's most knowledgeable about That's that. That's awesome. Topic. What a great environment to work in. That's great. Oh yeah, no, and the majority are adjunct like me. You know, they all have um, uh, often their own companies or they're working in companies, but they, um, they're, they're um, the ones that are not just most up to date on those particular topics, they're actually helping to move those arenas forward. And uh, so I have the enviable opportunity of being able to surf that, that amazing set of knowledge and pull out a variety of the themes and trends that relate to the future of work, the future of learning, and the future of the organizations that I, I typically coming back, keep coming back. Um, and, well, let's, uh, let's, um, let's delve into them. What's, um, were they on a certain path and is, is this just accelerating? that path or is this changing your thoughts about the future of all these things? So first off, what you find is that um, when you talk about the future of work, it's it's normally not about the future. It's about people's um, concerns and opportunities in present day. And uh, we've, we've gone through pretty significant shifts in the world of work um, and the way our organizations work before. Uh, but um, there's a couple things that we've known are true for quite some time. First off, we know that the, the pace of change is accelerating in terms of the impact of technology and and a lot of what we're asking humans to do in terms of continually having you know variety of, of aspects of their their work chain. and of course that's not evenly distributed as the science fiction author william gibson is 
on the saying, um, you know, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Uh, there are some arenas where people are just doing you know, amazing science fiction level activities, leveraging technology. And there's other things that are, you know, there are arenas, you know, such as um, in many cases, you know, like uh, restaurants or, you know, certain aspects of retail that sort of seem like what we've been doing for hundreds of years. But the, yeah, like, but the like truth a, is that pace is like accelerating. Like, like going to the doctor and still filling out paperwork. And, you know. Right, exactly. Yeah, we still do lots of things we've been doing for a long time. But, um, but the pay, you know, in, in terms of the um, technologically fueled uh, pace of change, I mean, you know, the, the, it's tons of technologies that we point to, like the, you know, obviously the iPhone um, or uh, inflection points. I call this point that we're at right now the Great Reset. Um, and because we do hit these inflection points where suddenly things accelerate and they're often associated with things like wars or things like economic downturns, uh, or things like viruses. And, but they're, but they're inflection points where we do things differently. Um, so that we know the pace of change has always been accelerating and we know the spread of change is also accelerating. You know, if you, if you were doing fine working in a mine or in a factory today and, that mine or that factory shut down, um, you know, you, if, if you went to Stanford, you know, you could get a four-year degree in, in uh, artificial intelligence or blockchain programming, and you could be making $250,000 a year U.S. So, so it's that spread of change. It's that there's, you know, the, the, the previous work that we've been doing, the skill set and the mindset that are needed to do the new work is actually in many cases a bigger step than it was in the past. So, so we knew that the pace and the spread of change were accelerating. Um, we just didn't know that something like a virus could actually encourage us to suddenly have to develop this skill set about becoming more digital, about having our organizations becoming more adaptive, about being more distributed as teams, and so on. So, what what are some examples of organizations or people that are using everything? They're like ten years out. You talked about unevenly distributed. Who is Who's doing the most innovative stuff you've seen? What is it? So it sort of depends upon what aspect of work um, most fascinates. So uh, they're um, and 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 they're often high tech companies. I think that's you know pretty you know, common because uh, or at least at very least younger companies, right? Because younger companies, um, especially when you're small, you have much more control over your organizational culture, over the kind of hiring that you do, over the practices that you ask people to follow, and you're, you're far more likely to be using newer technology uh, in a range of different roles, right? So, so younger and more tech-oriented tend to have, you know, some of the practices, but there's some big older organizations that are doing some things that are really exciting. So, and I'll just take a couple of the different examples. So, um, first off, I'm going to talk about individuals and um, and having their opportunities to be able to use their skills in a variety of ways. Uh, there's uh, um, several different organizations that, for quite some time, have been um, essentially uh, managerless. That is, organizations that just don't, don't um, have people in what we think of as traditional manager roles. So you look at uh, Valve uh, Software, which is the you know, the creator of the popular Steam uh, gaming engine. Um, the Company has no managers. You sort of uh, you're hired based on a profile. You find the problems that you think the company is not necessarily solving, and you hop in. And you you go to try to solve those problems. You know, in collaboration with your your team members. Um, as a matter of fact, um, Gore Industries, the company that makes Gore-Tex, uh, the, you know, the outdoor fabric, which which has been around since 1967, using practices uh, very similar. Um, you know, they're 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 really a managerless organization as well. Um, and, uh, and they, they have practices like um, they will only 
they try to keep um, the size of their factories and their offices to what's known as the Dunbar limit. Um, the, I've the, heard of that. Yeah, so the psychological limit that, that you know, each of us generally can remember about 150 names and faces, and beyond that point, it's kind of harder for most people. Um, so they believe that that's actually, that's a sort of human tribal level uh, construct that we would, if you get beyond that limit, then it's much harder just to build personal relationships. So those are just examples, just looking at individuals and how you empower individuals. So I'm, I'm happy to jump into some well, others. I want to make sure I'm hitting the direction you want. Before we move on, so we have some models of companies that are doing a very innovative way of doing things. What's the good and the bad now that they're case studies, like what's yeah. good about it, what's bad about it? Oh, good question. So um, uh, if, you, if you look on Glassdoor, you'll see that companies like Valve, uh, people uh, laud them for be, you know, more autonomy, for uh, really creative workers. And then they say, well, you know, this manager list thing, it's not always true. Uh, you know, it's often political and there are people, uh, it, the, the, the uh, uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm, his famous line is, uh, well, in that, in, that, in that context, all, all animals are equal. It's just that some animals are more equal than others. Um, and what happens, unfortunately, in uh, leaderless organizations is that uh, human distribution, natural human dynamics, there are some people that are going to pound the table more strongly, or they're going to have stronger opinions, or they're going to you know, want to amass power more than other humans. And, uh, and so these are the things, you know, this is, you can think of this as the, as the march towards entropy, right? It doesn't matter what we as humans do, um, the, world, the universe wants to decay. And so you have to have systems that are constantly adaptive. Uh, one of my uh, favorite examples is Asana. Uh, Chris Farinacci, their chief office, I've known for years since he was at Google. And uh, uh, they're a very adaptive organization. They're all about teams. They actually, they were co-founded by Dustin Moskovitz, one of the Facebook co-founders, and who got frustrated because he felt that when he was at Facebook, that there were just things that the company couldn't do to really help teams to focus on their work and to get rid of a lot of the trappings of work, right? So not work, but work about work, like meetings and reporting and all that sort of stuff. And so uh, he and his co-founders spent two years designing this company, designing its culture before Asana was even, even hired its first employee. And so it's a very adaptive organization. They have regular quarterly, essentially realignment processes uh, to ensure that everybody understands what the goals of the organization are, everybody is aligned with those goals, all the different parts of the organization take part in a completely integrated strategizing and alignment process, and it ensures that people don't get out of sync. And so, and they've continually modified that process over the life of the organization because it has to be, these kinds of processes have to be living and breathing steps. What are, what are some of the... Um practices of the future of work you've seen that you're not sure they may be good they may not they, they're really interesting and strange but uh, they have they hold promise so i want to point to a couple of things because you were good enough and i think exactly right to say these things are never 100 percent right so there's always a yin and a yang so uh let's let's take the uh the mentality du jour which is distributed teams right so uh we don't talk so much about remote workers so much because that kind of sounds like isolated. It's really teams are sort of distributed. And uh, if your readers are interested in sort of the gold standard book on the subject, uh, my friend uh, John O'Doohan uh, wrote a book called Distributed Teams. And he's got a lot of the mechanics of how you do this. Uh, but if you look at it from a strategic standpoint, essentially what you want, as I'm fond of saying, 
is that work is essentially just three things. It's a problem to be solved. It's a set of tasks that we perform. And then it's a set of sk human skills that we bring to bear. So it's humans, human skills applied to tasks to solve problems. And what happens as teams is we often become heavily focused on the tasks, which we lump together into what we call process. And we sort of forget the problem that we we're trying to solve. And so the real opportunity with distributed teams is, is actually at each one of those points. Uh, first off with human skills is if you are really thinking about, you have a magic wand and you could have the right mix of human skills to solve the problems that are in front of you. Maybe all of those humans are in the same geographical location, but it's very likely they aren't. And so, but unfortunately in this shift from industrial and post-industrial economies, um, we, we actually sort of fell into this model of having big companies and, you know, the mothership headquarters and, you know, putting more and more people stuffed into a building together. And that has a lot of positives, um, especially in terms of the sort of serendipity of bumping into people and some of the creative sparks that can fly. But it has a lot of negatives. Um, you, I recently did a talk for Singularity University's virtual summit, and I showed a picture first of a horrible commute uh, at rush hour and then of a massive cubicle farm. And I asked the question, remind me when we thought these were good ideas. You know, as humans, yep. we aren't necessarily at our best when we have to sit in a car in traffic for hours a day. And we're not at our best necessarily when we are, you know, sort of a faceless worker in a, you know, in what looks like a white collar production. So, so we have to think about if we unbundle all those, what are the ways we can design to optimize for the best way to interact together? And so if you, you have the best skills to be brought to bear in a team, then maybe those skills are right in front of you, or maybe the people that have those skills are, you know, miles away or halfway around the world. And so how can you find the best talent to solve the problem in front of you? Then how, with the tasks they're performing, how can you dynamically bind around those problems? How can you focus specifically on the problems to be solved and have the most effective steps that you go through to solve those problems? And so now that we're forced to all be part of distributed teams, and to be communicating through digital processes like uh, Zoom and, and Skype, we digital, digital, digital uh, video communications. What we have now is a set, you know, basically a global experiment of all trying to learn these processes. And so we're gonna get a lot of great things out of that. We're gonna get people much more able to be able to say, hey, we need to get together very quickly, look each other in the eye, solve this problem, and then move on to the next thing. But we also lose some things. We lose that random spark that I was talking about. We lose some of the personal connections. If you and I are in a meeting together and we look across the room and we realize, yeah, we got to talk after this. And we go to talk after this. And maybe what we're talking about is what the meeting was about. Or maybe what we're talking about is that my, my kid is sick and I need some help. You know, yeah. but those personal connections are often much more challenging when we we put technology in uh, between us. Um, there's a woman by the name okay. of Karen Sobolajewski. She wrote a book called uh, Virtual Distance, and she talks about those specific challenges and how to overcome them. Well, I've seen also, you know, layers of communication exist. You know, you're sitting in a meeting, you may look over at someone and like wink at them. But then, you, you know, with technology, you can have a meeting, let's say, uh, physically or on Zoom, and then people are texting each other privately about it. You can have different layers so that seems to exist both virtually and in person, but yeah. there's definitely it, missing the virtual feeling of being in the room with someone. It's very hard to recreate that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So what what are some general suggestions? Is it, it, 
is it more important than ever to set the rules and to deliberately create, I don't know, uh, recreate the physical somehow over virtual when you do meetings to make them successful? Like what, any so, suggestions for people? Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, these are all uh, processes. They're, they're problems to solve themselves. Um, and so uh, I think there's a variety of things that we can do. I, I, ideally, what I say is, look, it, it's, it shouldn't be an either or. When, when, when the handcuffs come off and hopefully we can all be in front of each other again, uh, I, I'm, I'm often asked now what, what remains and, and what should remain and how should we do it, right? So, so ideally, um, we, I think what we're finding is that technology allows us to build connections faster. We can be connected to more people. We can maintain more even sort of surface level or baseline communications, really large number. Uh, but that in person is when we really cement relations. It's when we really can interact with each other. We can shake a hand or bump an elbow and, and, uh, and we, we can talk with less structure than we have to when we deliberately have to set up, you know, a video phone call and block out the time and make sure that the kids aren't screaming in the background and so on. And so I think it's important for us to have the, the value of each remain. So uh, one of the things that you find in, in a variety of countries, uh, not always in the U.S., is the mentality that uh, you, you are a whole person. It isn't just that you come and you do the work uh, with narrow blinders on and do the work that's just in front of you. It's that you're a whole person. You've got tons of other skills and other things going on. You may have sick parents. You may have new kids. You may, you know, there's a variety of different things in your life, and you bring those too. And if those things intrude or if those things become more top of mind for you, then, you know, there are cultures that say, ah, you know, that's really important. We're going to all adjust. We know you're, you know, you're, you're taking with that other thing right now. And we're going to all adjust and we're going to make sure that you have this. I think that's happening more now because we are looking into our coworkers' living rooms. <laughs> and I just talked to a guy, did a video, the only, the only room in the, ta- in the house that he could actually have you know, the, 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 the quiet time to do his work because his kids took over his office is the main bathroom. So, so that's where he's doing his, his uh, calls from. And he's got a virtual background turned on uh, for most of his calls. And so um, what, I, what I hope we, we keep, what I hope remains is our understanding of the humanities. I hope that's, that's a very important part. I hope we also keep the mentality that we don't all have to be directly in front of each other every single moment and that we also don't have to have meeting after meeting after meeting, which is work about work, throughout our days when we are all together. That instead we're, we're thinking much more intentionally. And I also hope that we're going to realize that talent is anywhere. That we could be finding the talent that we need to help us to solve problems. And we don't have to, in all cases, force that talent to move geographically to be closer to other talent. That is, that we're going to find talent where it is and leave it in place. And I, and I believe that, it, you know, this is something that we just hopefully are learning, you know, because we were forced to do it. We're learning that this actually is a really great way for humans to be able to collaborate. I remember reading Ray Dalio's book, Principles, and he talked a lot about what he does in meetings. They'll have, uh, I guess, the system where people listening to the presenter can rate them, you know, on various different ways. And, you know, the presenter will know if they're being boring and how people are reacting emotionally and all that. Any any uh, observance of tools like that being incorporated into virtual meetings so that, again, you can 
just get more juice out of it and make it more real. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, I don't know that I would recommend, you know, Zoom has had this uh, this feature that allowed you to, allow the person who, you know, chaired the meeting to track attention. That is to see, you know, are they on the main video screen? Is it, yeah, I don't know if I'd, I'd necessarily, I, I would say you've got challenges in your corporate culture that you need to fix <laughs> if you care enough to need that level of control. You know, there's a, there's some trust issues that are, uh, you know, lacking. Um, but certainly, um, you know, I, I point to I point to a variety of, of different um, tools that, that really are more towards helping you to do the work of the team better. So everything from Basecamp to Asana, um, anything that helps you to explicitly know what others are doing, um, not in the creepy Big Brother way, but in the collegial. I'm telling people what I'm doing in my work. I'm telling people what I need in terms of help. I'm putting all that out on communications channels regularly. And then I know that about others as well. I, I strongly urge those types of approaches because at the end of the day, it's all about alignment. Um, I've, I've been a fan of this since literally since the early 90s when I became involved with um, partnering with a group called uh, Balanced Scorecard. Alignment is basically, it's the same in organizations as it is in marriage and other relationships. It's a set of agreements about what matters. And because the world is changing, because what matters changes on an ongoing basis, for the most part, uh, then we need to continually go through processes where we're checking in on each other. What, what do you think is important? What do I think is important? Oh, listen, we need to make that aligned better. Well, at, when, as organizations scale, you can get way out of alignment. And so it's really important to double down on things like being clear on organizational goals, being clear on priorities, being transparent when they change, being transparent about um, uh, leadership's needs in terms of what the organization needs to accomplish you know, in the, in the next uh, three, six, and 12 months. And, and those processes, alignment processes are not natural for us, uh, especially when we don't see each other, when we don't bump into each other, when we don't have the opportunities to continually update each other. Uh, it's just a natural human thing to lose track of what others are doing and what their priorities are. And so we've got to be very explicit. Organizations just need to sort of double down on those processes related to communications, related to alignment. With some with some specific suggestions, because I could see that you know if you don't watch out, you could be annoyed and inundated all day long with everyone doing everything, like notifications on social media. You know that's that's probably the worst example. How do you do it in the right way? Do you create dashboards or scoreboards where you could just you can look and see okay these things are moving along, but you don't have to have notifications pushed to you constantly. Like you know yeah. Joe scratched scratched his eyeball and you know, Mary <laughs> yeah. uh, Mary ate, uh, you know ate a sandwich. No, no, great point. So, um, so first off, it starts with the team, right? I, the leaders of organizations always want that dashboard, like they want it, you know, those, and, and there are organizations that have it for certain processes. Um, if you look at um, uh, what you've been called Flextronics, what's now Flex, um, you know, which is essentially a global supply chain uh, manufacturing um, outsourcer, and uh, they have technology they wrote for themselves, but they have one of the most amazing capacity to really, I mean, literally to go down to the shop floor level and to look at production processes. You can, you know, they've got this, this incredible minority report level um, uh, information management room where they, you know, they, you can basically see screens of manufacturing floors from all over the world. 
I'm not suggesting every company should or can do that. Supply chain companies um, have a special need in terms of making sure they're you're tracking you know things down to the widget level. But uh, there's there's a variety of things that any organization can do, and it all starts with the team. So the team level, you know, at the end of the day, uh, maybe you only work with one team throughout the entire day. Maybe you work with several different teams throughout the day. But really, it's about the process of being able to do no look passes or to have the kinds of connections with your coworkers so that they know what you're doing, you know what they're doing. And, and unfortunately, what we do is we keep adding new communications channels and then we overload those channels, right? So first we used email and that kind of got overloaded. Then we use Slack and then Slack channels. And then you don't. And so, you know, I, I point more to tools that are like um, Jira or Asana that are geared towards the work of the team. And if all that rolls up to something that a leader in an organization can see, that's great. But if all the teams in the organization are operating at an efficient level, they're communicating the right amount of time with each other, then you've got a pretty, you, that, that's a great foundation on which to build a high performance and very agile organization. What about um, the fear that automation will you know, replace a lot of jobs or now with coronavirus stuff uh, that, um, you know, companies are cutting a lot of people and they may not have them back. They may say, you know what, we're going to go for automation right now. But yeah. they may feel like they have to. What, what's the future there look like? So uh, as I'm fond of saying, uh, robots and software don't take jobs. Uh, humans give them away. Robots and software just automate tasks. Remember I was saying it's human skills applied to tasks to solve problems. Robots and software just automate tasks. And then a human decides if all those tasks add up to a job that could go away. Unfortunately, the rhetoric, a lot of the thinking around productivity and around throwing automation at a range of tasks is focused almost exclusively on the cost side of this. You know, how can we take these messy, expensive humans and how can we reduce their cost? Oh, well, we'll throw more robots and software. Um, so on the shop floor, it was robots. And now in more white collar work, it's called robotic process automation. And in an ideal world, what that does is it automates a lot of the repetitive tasks that, quote unquote, frees up humans to do other work. But there are companies where they want to automate so many tasks, uh, you know, a 100 percent freed up person is called unemployed. And so it's actually a set of decisions that leaders of organizations can make. Now, I understand perfectly well in some in, in such a seismic shift, uh, you know, again, big reset, the, the, the great reset of um, the coronavirus era, that there are companies that are at existential risk. But what history shows for each of the past three recessions that the U.S. and the world have gone through is we've done a set of similar things. We laid off a whole bunch of people. Uh, then we eventually started to rebuild. We hired a bunch of new people back. And then eventually we found it very, very hard to find the right people. And that cycle, we just keep going through again and again. So what I say is, look, if you look at the Nordic countries, if you look at Germany, if you look at even the UK, what they're doing right now is they're funding payrolls. And so I try to urge leaders in this era to be as uh, creative and intentional as possible, even asking people to all take a shared pay cut or anything that keeps people on the payroll. Um, and then automation should help those people to do their work better or should take tasks that, that really do help them to free up and do other work. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, the result of laying a whole bunch of people off or furloughing them, which hopefully we have benefits, and then trying to hire them back again, we, you know, history shows that that doesn't work very well. It actually has huge costs for the organization. And so, so long as the current um, reset 
doesn't last too long, you know, it's, it's uh, weeks or months as opposed to quarters, then uh, the more that an organization can do to try to retain its workers for as long as possible, the better the results will be downstream. Now, given that people are going to say, no, no, we need to automate more, it's perfectly understandable. What I say is, but, but focus on automation that is on the plus side of the ledger, that helps people to be able to collaborate more effectively that helps people to be able to communicate more effectively, that helps them to develop superpowers, throw more training at your, your workers because they, they might have a little bit more time now that they're not in meetings all the time. Pay it forward to develop people so that they will be able to solve the problems of tomorrow. That's where the real opportunity lies. And try to do the best that you can to ensure that as many people stay working as long as possible. What, what happens when you uh, furlough someone and you hire them back? Is there resentment and that's why it doesn't work? or was the furlough because technology changed and their jobs changed? Why does that not work? Well, so furloughing is is a is a lovely word uh, that means laid off, and I'm going to still try to give you something, and 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 you're still in the in the in the personnel system. I'm just not paying you, and so uh, so sure you 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 might be able to bring that person back online, but furloughing has zero guarantees for the worker zero, except whatever benefits you're continuing to give to them. And so you can still lay them off. And, and in the past, that's actually been true, is there's a lot of organizations that furloughed for a while and then they laid off. And it actually, to some extent, was a way to reduce the pain of not having to lay, too off, lay off too many people. So what you find is that if you've got people that are really good at solving particular kinds of problems, the longer they no longer feel connected to your organization, the more they're going to be looking for work elsewhere. And you would like it, that they're just sitting there waiting patiently for you to turn the lights back on, but people have to pay the rent. They've got to feed their families. They've got, so they're going to be looking for work in any way that they can. Now, if you can continue to pay them, even at a reduced rate, then you've got the, not just the loyalty of that worker, but that worker is going to jump in and try to solve any problem they possibly can for you. Uh, but if you lay them off or if you, you furlough them and, and that lasts for any length of time, then all bets are off. You don't have any guarantee that you're going to be able to have access to their skill set in the future. And as a matter of fact, what's happened in the past is organizations have made a set of decisions driven by, you know, often the need for productivity and by what they believe their shareholders want them. Um, you know, they, they typically will throw automation at some of the jobs. They typically will make some of the jobs uh, less, you know, enjoyable because they've sort of chunked down the, the kind of pay that people can make for them. They've up required jobs. That happened a lot during the Great Recession. A job that used to require only a high school degree suddenly required a college degree. It wasn't any harder job. But you could hire people with a college degrees and pay them less. And so, why would, and, why would they? Why would they do that? Why would they? Why would they make the requirement higher? Uh, well, it's uh, think of it as a supply and demand. You've got a bunch of problems to solve, and you've got a bunch of humans with skills, right? So think about what you're paying for people to solve those problems. If I'm paying somebody that has a high school degree and I'm paying them $15 an hour, then um, uh, and it would cost me $25 an hour for somebody with a college degree, uh, then I'm going to hire the person for $15 an hour because I can pay them less. Now, suddenly there's a recession and I can pay that college degreed person or maybe even with a master's degree, I can pay them $15 an hour. Hey, I'm going to hire that person because I get somebody with you know what I believe is better training and a better skill set. That's so it. it's, a, okay. it's a rational response. It just isn't a human response. Yeah. Hmm. And, well, and very good. I'm sorry, the other thing that happens is that the work becomes more precarious. So again, we've got great data. Uh, the, major the vast majority of work that was created 
in the six years from the beginning of the Great uh, Recession were, were, were non-standard work, part-time, temporary, gig work, contracted work. As a matter of fact, there are Silicon Valley companies where more than 50% of the people that work for them are contractors. And so you don't have to lay them off. You just stop using them. So it never shows up in a layoff report or anything like that. It's just, hey, you just told the contract, hey, we don't need those people anymore. And unfortunately, it makes for very precarious work for humans. And it means then that the company has no loyalty for those people that are working for it. And the people have no uh, safety net. You know, there's no, there's no sick pay. There's no, there's no, um, uh, they're not the ones that are covered by, you know, even furlough agreements. And so what ends up happening is uh, you can just sort of wash all those people out of the system, but they're real people. They, they were doing really real work. And so, and so that's gotcha. one of the, the, the things that happens again in these kinds of downturns. All right. So just about out of time, what um, do you have maybe a small subset of recommendations for people listening that want to you know, improve the status of their workers or their own circumstance? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't mean to be just a downer about this. I think we're entering into, into you know, just a time of biblical unemployment. And so what I, what I really want people, I hope people get is that there's a set of strategies that we need to follow to try to really have the, the society and the economy that we want. And, and if, you, if you think that you should do these things because uh, it's the human thing to do, that's great. But if you think that, if, you know, if that's not enough motivation, then uh, as, as I said in an article I wrote recently for Techonomy called The Great Reset, I said, you know, then, then do it because you, otherwise you won't like the economy that, that we're rebuilding. You know, in, in, in six months, 18 months, you know, we're going to have uh, a ton worse problems that we had in the Great Recession. And so, so I'm just going to point to a couple of things. First off, as an individual, stay curious. Uh, you become a lifelong learner. Do everything you possibly can to find things that fascinate you and just so that you stay current. You're always learning something new. There's always something that fascinates you that you might be wanting to do for work because we that, that creates what we call agency. And, and we know that people who have agency are the ones that are always doing the best possible work, whether you're employed or you're unemployed. You know, you want to always stay active and, and, uh, and moving forward. Uh, for organizations, you know, do the best thing that you can to try to enable teams to be as effective as possible, to be able to have the tools they need to be able to solve problems and to dynamically bind around problems. You know, you're going you're gonna to function much more as a very distributed and virtual organization in all likelihood in a pretty short period of time. There's a lot of that that's going to stick. And so you need to continually be thinking about how you help teams to be able to solve the problems of the organization. And then, and then finally, uh, alignment. How do, you, how do you make sure that people know what the goals of the organization are, how to, to understand the priorities of the organization and make sure their work actually feeds into one or more of those priorities. And of course, there's technologies you know, that can help do all of that. Uh, but the, you know, the basic takeaway should be you know, all the ways you can do to help people uh, either understand or develop their own superpower. Okay. Well, what, what's a resource for people? Where should they go? How should they start to figure so just this to make, out? Just, yeah, I think that's a good question. Just to help people sort of think about some of these things. So I would definitely urge you to look on Techonomy, this article that I wrote, Great Reset. I talk about some of these strategies. I've got nine courses on LinkedIn Learning and five lectures on Pluralsight, um, everything from developing adaptive uh, workers and, and managers to the new rules of work and developing a learning mindset. And I'm, you know, I'm not making money off my courses, I, uh, but uh, so I'm not trying to sell them. It's just, you know, these are resources to be thinking about in terms of ways you could learn to be able to develop some of these strategies and some of these. Well, that's great. I mean, you know, if you are selling them, then 
you should sell them. I mean, if you're uh, <laughs> you're contributing valuable stuff, uh, people need to value it and take it seriously. So I suggest okay, anyone well, listening, you know, I'm, I have a hard time thinking about the implications. I'm sure you've thought long and hard about it. Anyone listening probably hasn't thought about it as much as you have. So they really need uh, help to figure out, all right, what to do for themselves, what to do for their workers and to have them. So I appreciate you giving these resources. That's great. All right, Gary. Well, thank you for coming. I, uh, you know, like I said, it's been very, very informative. Well, listen, I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful having this conversation, and I just want to leave people, you know, with a strong feeling of hope. You know, we, we, you know, as humans, we're we're able to to step up in, in these times of challenges and to to work more. You know, if 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 the takeaway, if we don't get the takeaway from this period that we're all interconnected, that we're all living the same human experience, then I think we missed we missed the memo. So uh, we true. are all very deeply connected. And I think, I think we all have the capacity to come together and to solve some of the challenges these seismic. Excellent. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.